1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
0: Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings.
2: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the International Spy Museum, I'm the Executive Director, Peter Ernest. Our author today is Mike Sulik, uh, who started off, I might add, in the Bronx and made his way eventually to CIA uh, by way of having served in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War, and he holds a Ph.D. from City University in New York, so he falls into that category, I think, of a warrior scholar spy. Uh, Mike speaks Spanish, Polish, and Russian. He joined the CIA in 1980, served in what is the Clandestine Service, at that time the Director of Operations, later becoming the Clandestine Service, and then the National Clandestine Service, and he served in Japan, Peru, Poland, and Russia. And he rose to become, as you know, the ADDO, that is the Assistant Director of Operations, before he left the agency in 2004, I happened to be in touch with Mike during that period. Following 2004, he was enjoying retirement. I think on the date I phoned him, he was his wife Shirley, who's with us today, said he is out floating in the pool. But I'll see if he'll come and talk to you. <laughs> um, the other person who phoned him, I think either later that day or later, was General Mike Hayden, then the head of uh, then the head of uh, CIA, who asked Mike if he would come out of retirement and head up the clandestine service, the National Clandestine Service. And that was in 2007. Uh, Mike got out of the pool and graciously agreed to serve. And he then spent subsequently three years at the agency as the head, as, as the head of the clandestine service. The book, of course, that we are featuring today is his Spying in America. Uh, as Mike says himself, in the in the introduction to the to the book, so often the press of events, particularly for those of us in the clandestine service, oftentimes interferes what with what anyone else would call your professional reading. Many of our folks never got around to professional reading because they were doing cases. They were making what would become professional reading. And Mike said he when he was in the service he felt that there wasn't. One place you could go and sort of have a, a very good recap of what had been espionage operations in this country, particularly from a counterintelligence point of view. And like other authors, he said, So there wasn't anything available. I decided to write a book, which he's done. It uh, takes us up through World War II. I know he's working on Volume Two, which will pick up the period after that through today. Uh, his emphasis, as so many of us who ran cases uh, had as an interest, is motivation. Why did people do what they did? And that will run like a thread all through the book. So, Michael, welcome to the museum. We're delighted to have you. Please help me welcome Michael Stewart, And this will be his book. Thank you. Good to see you, Mike. Okay. And this, uh, this will be available for signing after his presentation.
3: Well, thanks very much, Peter, for that introduction and thank you all for uh, coming today. I see a lot of familiar faces in the crowd, uh, colleagues as well as uh, supervisors, mentors over the years. So now I realize that uh, I probably will have a lot of things in that book that were wrong and some of you may point out those mistakes to me, unfortunately. And um, I've got people here even arranging back. Through somebody I knew 45 years ago when we attended Vietnamese language school together in the Marine Corps. And I must say, he's aged less gracefully than I have. Um, <laughs> but thank you also for coming out here in this. This is very uh, lousy weather today, but it's actually good spying weather. At least I found it so when I was uh, in Moscow years ago when it was snowing or raining. It was usually best time to, to operate there. Um, but that gets me to the subject at hand, and that's this book. And I'm just going to go over some uh, some of the main points in it. I'll use a couple of the examples that I've used in the book of some of the cases. Uh, every nation clearly has been a victim of espionage, and not just the United States. You know, citizen betrayed secrets for all kind of um, motives. Uh, I'm obviously on this book focusing on American history, American espionage history, uh, because that's what I know best, first of all. But it's also... Um, our history as such is a little bit unique in its approach to spying. Uh, one of the common threads that I found in all of the cases, most of them, I should say, was disbelief. You know, Americans, seem, more than any other nationality, seem to refuse to believe that their fellow Americans, their fellow citizens would spy and betray the nation's secrets, uh, sometimes even when they were uh, confronted with irrefutable proof of this. And that disbelief kind of ironically stems from two very positive you know, attributes of, of the United States, and one is its geography. You know, exceptional geography in a sense. It's a land blessed with a, abundant resources. Also had natural defenses on both sides. You know, flanked by two huge oceans, that essentially, in the early years, uh, isolated us from the warring nations of Europe and some of the emerging nations in in Asia. So, for about the first 120 years of our existence as a nation really faced no threats from a foreign enemy, no major threats. And In many respects, it was a war among ourselves, the Tories versus revolutionaries in the, the Revolutionary War and North versus South in the Civil War. And those clashes even affected families on both sides where there was um, disputes within. Benjamin Franklin clearly was a great patriot. His son, however, William, uh, was a rabid Tory and was the royal governor of the colony of New Jersey. In the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln, his, um, his wife, had a brother and three half-brothers who fought in, on the Confederate side. And Lincoln also had a sister-in-law who used to smuggle medicine and supplies to Confederate forces. So we really weren't threatened by a foreign enemy in a major conflict until World War I. I don't really count the Spanish-American War as a, as a major conflict. So it was natural that we really didn't believe in the threats of espionage. And one of the earliest examples of this was, you know, a figure known to everybody here, a name known to every schoolboy, that's Benedict Arnold, Um, named synonymous in the United States with treason and espionage. But at the time he was spying, uh, the colonials knew the British were trying to induce uh, officers from the revolutionary side to defect, to spy for them. There was even information that they had, you know, bagged a highly placed general. George Washington and others uh, knew that Arnold was um, involved in some shady business deals, very resentful of the Continental Congress. They hadn't paid him money that he was owed. He felt they had re- didn't really recognize his exploits that were actually very considerable. But still, when it turned out that he was a spy, Washington was abs- and others were absolutely shocked. But if you fast forward 150 years later, basically the same thing occurred during the 1930s and 1940s when the Soviet Union probably had the largest um, network of spies maybe in its history, certainly largest network in US history, over 500 Americans who were uh, spying for the Soviet Union, many of them in FDR's administration, a number inside the Manhattan Project, which at that time was our most closely guarded secret. Then suddenly some defectors from the Soviet cause people I'm sure probably well-known to some of you here, uh, courier Elizabeth Bentley, and another one, Whitaker Chambers, uh, provided names and actually their stories kind of corroborated each other. Still later, the United States government develops really irrefutable proof of widespread espionage through something called the Venona Project, which, again, I think many of you probably know about here. For those who don't, uh, the project was started... After Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler, uh, the U.S. Army began intercepting messages that were essentially transmitted over telephone lines from Soviet facilities in the United States, like its embassy and trade mission, to their headquarters in Moscow. And the messages kind of just piled up on Army desks. Uh, They were all enciphered, naturally. And it was only later in the war when the United States had concerns that Stalin might make a separate peace with Hitler that they began this arduous task of decrypting the messages and discovered, much to their chagrin, that the Soviet intelligence uh, had spies inside the Manhattan Project. And as they worked more on this, they saw that the names that were given by Bentley and Chambers were, in fact, uh, spies. But even then, some of the highest levels of the United States government refused to believe that. Now, the second reason for this disbelief that I talk about is also, again, ironically, one of our... Most cherished values, and that's our advocacy of individual liberties. Uh, Americans are basically, have always remained uncomfortable with espionage, with our collecting secrets, and also with counter espionage, catching spies. And it's an attitude that I believe dates back to our first settlers. I mean, they came from Europe, many of them, to escape the oppression and the, uh, the intrigue of the royal courts of Europe at the time. And espionage was obviously a key aspect of the, that statecraft, of, of those policies. Um, so that, that really represented aspects of life that they wanted to escape when they fled to the New World. And as American history progresses, unfortunately, their suspicions turn out to be justified in many respects. Because aside from these disbelievers who refused to see spies anywhere, There have always been throughout history, American history, kind of a minority of zealots who saw spies and saboteurs everywhere and that abused authority and violated civil rights in the name of catching spies. Uh, The first instance of this, which I deal with in this this tome, um, was a gentleman named Lafayette Baker who ran one of the two union intelligence services in the Civil War, Uh, called the National Detective Police. And he went and rounded up alleged subversives and spies and detained them unlawfully, and in the process never really caught a real spy. Then again, you see history repeat itself right after World War I, when indeed there were anarchists and socialists who were organizing strikes in the United States, uh, engaging in acts of violence. And so the Attorney General at the time, a gentleman named Mitchell Palmer, who was, uh, was also interested in getting a job at the White House, the presidency, um, he launched something called the Red Raids, which again would unlawfully detaining supposed subversive saboteurs and the like, and rounded up thousands. And he used a, a, a new outfit in the Department of Justice that at the time was called by called the Bureau of Investigation, that was led by a young lawyer named Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm sorry, <laughs> actually, it's J. Edgar Hoover, but. Um, I find when I talk to students sometimes, they, they know the actors better than the characters <laughs> that they're portraying. So, but anyways, young, ambitious lawyer named J. Edgar Hoover, who was leading this uh, Bureau of Investigation. Well, Palmer's dire warnings turned out to be overblown. He was discredited. His hopes for the White House were dashed. Uh, but it didn't end there. You know, there was anti-German hysteria uh, before uh, the World Wars, uh, internment of Japanese-Americans in World War II. then you go forward a few decades, same J. Edgar Hoover organizes a program she calls COINTELPRO, which is short for Counterintelligence Program, where the FBI was seeking foreign spies, uh, looking for a foreign hand in the civil rights and the peace movements, but in the end really finds no evidence of any major spies, either in Martin Luther King's entourage or in the peace movement. And finally, as recently as a decade ago, clearly there was a backlash in the country, in the days following 9-11, anti-Arab backlash uh, as well. But none of these movements, none of these um, zealot responses to these uh, crises in our history really ever turned up any real major spies. So these suspicions and this disbelief also contributed to the absence of any real institutions uh, to both collect intelligence as well as to catch spies, any counter-espionage. Uh, Americans would set up institutions in wartime, and once the war was over, they disbanded them and went off to their pursuits. Uh, example is the first, the, the CIA actually acknowledges the kind of the first chief of counterintelligence, spy catching, to be John Jay, and he actually did have an organization and only operated in New York State during the Revolution. Obviously, the Revolution ends, he goes off to other pursuits and becomes the first uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court which probably left him a little more famous legacy than being head of counterintelligence. But it was an example of how people who got involved in this work went off to other pursuits. So every time a new conflict started, the United States had to kind of rebuild these capabilities anew. And the few institutions they did have uh, were plagued by interagency rivalry and and turf battles. Uh, I won't deny that sometimes even today some of that happens, but it's it's, uh, certainly far less than it was at that time. In the Civil War, the Union had two counterintelligence services, basically. Uh, One that I mentioned run by Mr. Baker, Lafayette Baker, and the other one by Alan Pinkerton, who would later, of course, become uh, the head of the foremost detective agency in the United States. But these two services would sometimes stumble over each other. They even arrested each other's own agents at times, and some of the stories about them were really like the Keystone Cops. but that's in the Civil War. But even you, you know, fast forward ahead to World War One, and its aftermath, there are turf battles between the Department of Justice, which has uh, uh, Hoover's Bureau of Investigation, and the Treasury Department, which had the Secret Service. And the both of them kind of vying with President Wilson to gain control of uh, authorities and counter espionage. And they both did have actually limited authorities. Finally, the dispute settled before World War Two when Franklin Roosevelt invest the uh, uh, a legal authority in the FBI for spy catching in the United States now the, in the cases that I deal with in this book I kind of uh, as I say in the introduction I deal with kind of six elements to me the basic elements of of, you know, of espionage the spy cases motive as Peter mentioned before access you know what secrets did these people have uh, access to and what did they share with their masters tradecraft which as everybody here knows kind of the art science of clandestinity, how you communicate with your spies, your sources, without getting caught. Um, That exposure, how they were caught, punishment, and finally damage, what damage do they really do to national security. Motive, um, just like around the world, American spies uh, uh, decided to betray secrets for the same reasons that people do uh, around the globe, money, ideology, thrills, ego. Uh, resentment, dual loyalties. What do you think is the out of those that I just said? What do you think is the main one? I know everybody's going to get this right, so is This little interaction with the audience. You got, you're kind of hesitant, you know. It's like uh, nobody ever gets that wrong. Yeah, money. It's money, but at the same time as um, uh, we know, like I see, I have a lot of a number of my FBI colleagues in the audience uh, as well too. But you know, we kind of know that it's often a combination of those. Uh, motives, not just money alone. Uh, the first major spy uh, in the Revolutionary War is a gentleman named Benjamin Church. And on the surface, he was a leading patriot. Uh, he was a doctor at Bunker Hill, com- cured the wounded there. Uh, Washington appointed him Surgeon General of the Army. Uh, he was a colony in Massachusetts. him is their liaison, if you will. their representative to the other colonies. Uh, he's a member of the Colonial Underground, the Sons of Liberty. At the same time, he had a mistress. He liked the high life. Um, physici- <laughs> physicians weren't paid the enormous uh, salaries that they were they, they sometimes command today. So he didn't have that much money. So he decided to spy for the British. Benedict Arnold, you know, also offered his services to the British for money, but in his case kind of also illustrates what I said before that you know it's a combination of motives that really impel people to spy. Um, he clearly spied for money, but he had lot of the other motives that I mentioned before, his uh, resentment over the unfair treatment by Congress, he had been passed over for promotion, not recognized for his exploits, so his motives were really a kind of a, a mixture of things. And money for him was, you know, he had debts, uh, he wanted more money, so clearly it was a main motivation, but in a sense money was something even more to him, it was a, a kind of a recognition of his self-worth, you know, recognition that he felt had been denied him by his own people in the, in the colonies. Now, not all Americans spied for money. Uh, in the Civil War, pr- pretty much the vast majority of those who were spies did so out of loyalty to the Union or to the Confederate cause. But among the, the unique period, I think, in American history or American espionage history is in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, you know, it's the Depression, Uh, Capitalism doesn't seem to be working. The Soviet Union has just formed a few decades before. Uh, A lot of propaganda about its economic successes, gargantuan steel mills that are producing. And Stalin is also seen as a bulwark against fascism that's on the rise in Europe. So communism is kind of an attractive alternative to a number of Americans. And you have hundreds of sympathizers who flock to work for the New Deal in, in the Roosevelt administration. A lot of them started out in Marxist discussion groups, a number of which you know, evolved into spy networks. And some of the people were actually, when the, uh, the Soviets offered them payment, uh, they were insulted by it. And a lot of them also were members of the Communist Party, so actually paid dues for the privilege of, of spying rather than receiving any money. Now, access, let me just say a little bit about this. Uh, one of our former CIA directors, Alan Dulles, you know, said intelligence is really, espionage is all about access. You know, What secrets do you know that you can give to your masters? Uh, clearly, Benedict Arnold, highest-ranking spy in American history, had access to a number of the Colonial War plans. But there are others like Harry Dexter White, who was one of the most senior officials in the Treasury Department during this uh, you know, Soviet golden age of espionage. Uh, He's also the architect of the International Monetary Fund and a Soviet spy. Alger Hiss, high-ranking State Department official, um, was in the forefront of the U.S. delegation at the establishment of the U.N. during the talks in San Francisco. But there are also a number of little gray men and women who are aides and advisors and clerks as well. Uh, One example I use early on in this book is a gentleman named Edward Bancroft. (laughs) He was a spy for the British while he was an aide to Benjamin Franklin in Paris. Franklin was there to try to organize covert support from the French to the, to the colonies. Uh, Lachlan Curry, an advisor to Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the White House. And another case I did with Judith Copeland, who was a clerk in the Department of Justice, where she had access to FBI files that she shared liberally with um, Soviet intelligence. But then there are others that I mentioned before who had no direct access to secrets at all, but you know helped basically facilitate spy operations. Elizabeth Bentley, who was a courier, Whitaker Chambers um, but my favorite I think, in all of these is a is in the Civil War, a union spy named Elizabeth van Lu, uh, no direct access to any kind of secrets at all, but organized a very effective network and I, you know probably of all the ones I deal with in this book, I found her to be the most innovative spy, if you will i mean it 's the middle of the nineteenth century she 's a single woman, no training, experience in espionage, uh, abhors slavery, she lives in the heart of the confederacy in Richmond and decides to spy offer her services to the Union. Uh, she develops her own set of codes, uses secret writing and invisible ink, and develops kind of a layered system of you know, redundant security mes- measures. Not only enciphers all this information, but she splits the messages into sections and sends them along various routes. So if one somebody's caught, you know, the whole message won't be um, compromised. Sets up a courier system of way stations along these routes and uses farmers and merchants. But probably most ingenious of all, she uses slaves to do it. And obviously, in the South at that time, People did not consider slaves really intelligent enough that they could participate in intelligence operations. And one of her real coups was um, she sent one of her slaves north for an education. And when the lady came back, they had Lou placed her as, as a maid in the home of Jefferson Davis, obviously the president of the Confederacy. So you can imagine what she picks up around the dinner table as Davis is sitting there with his cabinet and his generals. And all of them looking at her is just another piece of the furniture. Let me talk a little bit about tradecraft. As I said, this is kind of the art of clandestinity to ensure the safety of your sources, which is, uh, you know, in in my old business, the CIA was a a moral imperative. Um, The greatest risk in, in spy operations, of course, communications. At some point, the spy has to have some kind of contact with his handler, his spy masters, if you will, pass information, receive questions, money, or what other materials are necessary. So tradecraft involves all the tricks of the game that a lot of you already here in the audience know. Codes, ciphers, secret writings, invisible ink, dead drops, and so on. Dead drops being pre-designated spots where a cache of information will be left. Spots known only to the spy and to his spy handlers. Uh, Uh, Interestingly, that method goes back even to the days of the Revolutionary War. Um, I mentioned the case of Edward Bancroft before. Uh, He was in Paris with uh, Benjamin Franklin. The the French and the British were rivals at the time. Uh, The French Security Service clearly was paying close attention to the British that were in the country. So obviously the British would want to be seen meeting with one of Franklin's, uh, you know, closest aides so they actually used dead drops. Uh, every Tuesday night Bancroft would go to a popular Paris park with a bottle. he would put his information inside there, tie a rope around it on the other end tie um, tie it to a twig, put the bottle in a hollow of a tree where only so then only the twig was showing and then uh, an hour later British intelligence officer would come take that twig, take the bottle out, put whatever questions he had or any you know, money, whatever, in the bottle where Bancroft will later come and then retrieve it again. Now, this is the same method actually used by uh, not only my colleagues in the KGB to, to uh, have contact with their agents in Washington and elsewhere through the Cold War, but the CIA used the same methods in, in Moscow as well, so they're uh, kind of time-tested and true. Um, Now, tradecraft, say, that leads to the next element I discussed, which is exposure. Clearly, if you don't do this, take these measures seriously, you don't do them right. um, That leads to the exposure of of your sources. This has happened a number of times, as I point out in the book and the cases I deal with. Um, This the example I'll cite here with the Germans, uh, because nobody likes a Nazi, so it's easy to pick on them. Um, They... Uh, had some successes spying against the United States before and during both world wars. But overall, their espionage in the United States was pretty – their tradecraft, their security was pretty shoddy and actually led to the exposure of of, uh, a lot of their sources and and key intelligence operations. They never really evaluated the Americans they recruited as spies or saboteurs. Um, Clearly, they look for spies in the German-American communities in the United States. They thought they could find somebody who might have dual loyalties. Uh, they were very successful in one case, a gentleman named uh, Hermann Lang, a uh, German-American in New York City who frequented you know, some of the, the, the German-American haunts in the neighborhood. Uh, Lang was an engineer in a uh, company called the Norden Company that was owned and run by another immigrant whose uh, name was Carl Norden. Now, Norden had invented a device that was named after him called the Norden bombsight which at the time was a major development in kind of the new arena of uh, aerial uh, bombardment in the early days of air warfare. Basically, the concept was the higher a plane flies, it drops a bomb, the more inaccurate it is. The lower it flies, the more accurate it is, but it's more vulnerable to ground, fly, ground fire. excuse me. So Norton basically solved the problem. He, he knew a lot about gyroscope technology and applied that to design this platform, this device that would, wouldn't be affected by the changing position of an airplane. Now, this was this was actually considered a very deeply guarded secret. There are all kind of security rules about access and information on this particular uh, weapon and what to do if it, you, know, you were shot down, you were a pilot, how to destroy it and so on. But Lang worked in the factory, had access to the blueprints, took them home, drew them and then gave them to the Nazis, mainly because he felt someday his – his motherland, Germany might need them. He really wasn't you know, uh, stridently anti-American or anything at the time. Um, the Nazis that received this, fortunately for us, they, they never learned how to mass produce it. But that was a success, and it was kind of unique. More typical of German espionage was the case of a gentleman named William Sebald, who was a, another German who had emigrated to the United States, uh, returns on a trip to Germany in 1939 to visit his mother, German intelligence basically pulls him aside and blackmails him into cooperating with them. They said they knew that he had lied on his visa application when he first entered the United States. He had had some kind of a minor arrest in Germany, and they said, you know, they would basically rat him out but blackmailed him. So he's caught. He agrees to do it. Uh, He has to spend a few more months beyond his vacation with his mother in Germany to learn uh, how to operate a radio, he's basically going to be the communicator. Uh, so he, he does this, he sets, comes back to the States, sets up a front office in, in Manhattan, a radio station in his home in Long Island, and eventually there's a whole stream of Nazi agents bringing him information to send back to Berlin. Suddenly in July of 1941, the FBI swoops in and arrests over 30 Nazi spies. Hitler is reportedly furious. German intelligence is devastated. You know, how could this happen? They find out as they watch the trial take place and the star witness for the prosecution is William Sebald. He essentially had become a double agent. Uh, he was After he was blackmailed, uh, he told the Nazis he had to go to the US embassy to wire some money back to his wife, reported the entire reproach, and agreed to work for the FBI. Uh, the FBI not only sent all his radio messages but they wired his office in Manhattan up with uh, audio devices and cameras to basically record the evidence of these 30-plus people who came to this office to bring information. It was a major Nazi mistake. Uh, I think bred of you know, their arrogance. They believed that anybody with German blood, any true Aryan, would probably willingly serve the fatherland, even if he was blackmailed. So they did no basic background checks, um... Uh, something you would certainly do is somebody who's going to be a communicator who's going to have all this access to this information from all these spies, then they compound the mistake by exposing him to basically the entire network so he can identify them all to the FBI and facilitate their videotaping of him. So on the eve of American entry into World War II, Nazi eyes and ears in the United States basically go blind and deaf. And this happens with other operations that they do throughout the war, too, as I describe in that book. Now, Soviet intelligence had serious problems with tradecraft and security as well with their network of spies in the United States. Um, These networks, as I said, kind of evolved from Marxist discussion groups, and they never really abandoned this coffee-clutch approach to spying. Uh, KGB constantly tried to get them to improve their security, These are American citizens. They were in America. They felt they knew their environment better. They also had considerable influence. Those in the Communist Party of the USA had considerable influence back in Moscow. So the members kind of of did what they wanted. Uh, They knew each other. They typed each other's information. They talked by phone. Um, There was one spy. He was working for the GRU who uh, decided he would recruit another one of his fellows um, uh, to, to be a spy, he thought this guy was sympathetic, and he made the approach to him. And the guy told him, "That's too late. I'm already working for the KGB." So um, <laughs> it's not quite the way you, to run the railroad. But again, uh, and of course, the you know, the GRU handlers and KGB handlers were, ter- you know, horrified when they heard that story. But this, but these, things like this happened a lot then. Um, you wonder, well, how were they able to operate so easily and, and get away with all this? Well, at the time, you know, the FBI was kind of preoccupied with other things. They were trying to find the likes of John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde, and you know, crime in the United States. And also, uh, their main focus, as far as foreign targets, were German and Japanese, because this was the, uh, the emerging enemy and eventually the enemy. And Soviets, of course, had been, you know, became our allies in World War II. But because of this. This poor security, somebody like Elizabeth Bentley, who is a courier, when she goes to the FBI, she basically reveals the specific identities of 80 Americans who are spying for the Soviets, 27 of whom are working inside the United States government. Um, punishment for these spies when they're caught. It's, uh, the punishment varied um, often depending on a number of f- factors uh, throughout history. And sometimes would reflect the particular political dynamics of, a, uh, of, the, of the era when the spies were caught. Uh, in the Revolutionary War, when Church was caught, uh, Washington himself and others wanted to you know, string up Benjamin right away, hang him from the highest yard arm, and then they realized they had no espionage law. Um, so they quickly had to devise one. Well, by the time of the Civil War, nobody really paid attention to that espionage law. Uh, minor spies on both sides were usually just simply – release because you know, neither the Union or the Confederacy really had the money, wanted to spend the money to, to feed them, so they'd let them go. In some cases, however, depending on the whim of the local commander, they were hung. Um, now, this haphazard approach kind of ended with the onset of World War I when the Espionage Act was um, enacted in 1917. But as I said, punishment often reflects the political dynamics or the context of the time, and the best illustration of that is probably... You know, one of the most famous uh, spy cases, or famous any criminal case in American history, and that's Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Um, by the time of their trial, the U.S. flirtation with communism has ended. Uh, Soviets are no longer an ally but an adversary. They've occupied Eastern Europe, tested an atomic bomb based on secrets they stole from us. Mao Zedong is on the rise in China, and the Korean War is ongoing. So in this heated, very anti-Soviet, anti-communist climate at the time, Rosenbergs are not only convicted but executed for espionage, uh, sparking a controversy, a debate that's lasted for years. Uh, clearly, people on the left said this was they were innocent victims of right-wing hysteria. Those on the right said they were just evidence of a, a growing widespread cancer of communism in American society. Um, this debate lasted for years. Eventually, a number of sources, the Venona project was declassified. Uh, Soviet defectors came forth. Uh, the Rosenberg's own case officer, Mr. Faklisov, you know, wrote a book about them, or in which he wrote a book about his career in which he discussed them. And even Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev acknowledged their contribution. But in spite of that, um, oh, and also, actually, it's just a few years ago, 2008, when their two sons, uh, came forth and said that they finally admitted that their parents were spying, although they kind of wanted to deny that for years. But despite that, there is still a debate over the severity of their sentences, uh, especially about Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, she was clearly a dedicated communist, knew her husband uh, was spying, but during their trial there was very little evidence of her collaboration in the spy efforts of this. Um, but when she was sentenced to death, even J. Edgar Hoover, who was, you know, somebody would hardly called an anti-communist, uh, actually opposed the death penalty for her because he felt the image of their, you know, their two orphan children would probably hinder FBI <laughs> efforts in the future on, in spy catching. And you see later in the Cold War, uh, which I don't treat in this book, but in in the, the in the sequel, if you will, uh, there were spies who did equal or you could say even more damage than. Than the Rosenbergs, a case that jumps to mind is John John Walker, of course who betrayed our military codes and uh, compromised um, secrets of our sea-based nuclear missiles, which at that time were you know the most invulnerable leg of our triad of sea-based, air-based, and land-based missiles. Uh, he's convicted, but life imprisonment, not you know not sentenced to death. So the the issue in the Rosenberg debate, uh, which to all these cases, what is the damage that caused cause to national security? I mean, Rosenberg himself did not have any direct access to any nuclear se- or any atomic bomb secrets. He recruited his brother in law, uh, David Greenglass, who was a mechanic in uh, Los Alamos, uh, who had only a limited knowledge of what he was working on. And he clearly wasn't the only one who gave information about the atomic bomb. Um, there were other spies there, you know, like Klaus Fuchs, a British scientist, who worked on the project a Soviet illegal named George Koval, who actually provided what was known as a plutonium trigger that was key to the detonation of the bomb, and another uh, spy named Ted Hall, who was kind of a child genius who graduated from Harvard at 15 years old or something, a real genius in physics, and worked on what was called the implosion method, which is the, the real breakthrough in the, in the bomb design. So. Um, you know, again, the issue of what damage did these spies really cause. Some historians say the you know, atomic bomb was probably the most egregious secret to leak out. Uh, some historians believe that Stalin felt emboldened as a result of the atomic bomb test that the Soviets conducted based on the, their development of the bomb, of their own version. And as a result of that, he sanctioned the North Korean invasion. Um, a war that wound up with four million casualties and the deaths of over thirty thousand or thirty-five thousand U.S. servicemen. But overall, you know, espionage, as much as interesting as it is, um, uh, really doesn't, alone doesn't change the course of events. You know, the nation still got its independence in spite of Benedict Arnold. The Union persevered despite Confederate spying. We survived two world wars without, uh, in spite of enemy spies. And the Soviet Union eventually went into the dustbin of history, although they had certainly uh, done quite a, a spy job on us throughout the Cold War. Uh, that said, though, espionage does take its toll, um, and I write about this more in the second volume, because there are cases where spies gave up secrets that uh, resulted in the loss of American life. I'll point to, the, as one example, the case of John Walker. Among the information he gave was. Uh, in, uh, information which we presume I guess the Soviets passed to the Vietnamese during the Vietnam conflict and that enabled them to shoot down a lot of our pilots over uh, over Vietnam some of course died and others spent time in the Hanoi Hilton and years in, uh, in prison so but let me leave it uh, at this point I'll take any questions you have uh, any errors any complaints any complaints? Please direct them to Peter.
2: <laughs> First of all, thank you so much, Mike, for a really terrific <laughs> presentation. Okay. Right. Okay. okay. If you would please just wait for the microphone, so everyone can hear the question. We'll get to as many of you or all of you as we can when we start right here.
4: Yeah. Uh, hi. You uh, mentioned, the mic, the, uh, You mentioned the uh, Espionage Act of 1917. Now that is still the act that's being used to um, to prosecute espionage. Uh, how come Congress has not updated that? It just seems that there's a lot more to espionage than is probably contained in that act. Yeah, the,
3: the,
2: you're gonna have to answer for Congress now, too, uh, <laughs> uh, Michael.
3: Congress dysfunctional. That's why. <laughs> um, I mean, they can't handle a fiscal cliff. How are they going to handle SBS? No, but that act actually, there have been um, uh, updates to that act over the years, things like classified um, identities, procedures, the um, escape. There have been additions made to, to, to the act has been revised over the years, sometimes to stiffen the penalties more and so on. So,
2: Okay, questions? One all the way in the back, uh, right next to you. Amanda, all yes, right, yes. Okay, and then Mark had one.
0: You mentioned, I think, that uh, Soviet espionage was more successful because of uh, ideology in this this country, like thirties and forties and things like that, as opposed to money and other things. Uh, I recently uh, saw a cartoon that was Civil War Reconstruction period that said or talked about the communist threat. And do you think there was almost a organic, almost indigenous uh, communist uh, growth in this country from the time of Marx, maybe in the 1840s, that really contributed to the great success of uh, Soviet espionage in the 30s and 40s?
3: No, I think that even early on there was interest in communism, but it really doesn't uh, evolve into a movement that attracts a lot of people until the Great Depression because these, you know a lot of people question whether you know, capitalism versus communism. The capitalist system clearly isn't working. Millions of people uh, unemployed, and I think that's what sparks. Uh, because then you also you have a wider uh, sections of society. that, you know it's uh, agrarian people, farmers attracted to it, students and intellectuals. Uh, the movement spreads beyond um, what it probably was in the you know the 19th century when. First interest in it starts in the United States. But I do you want to, you know, I guess, amend this a little bit. In the 1930s and 40s, yes, ideology, but by the time the 50s come, I mean, I think the Soviets kind of caught on fast that uh, they abandoned using the Communist Party of the United States as kind of a breathing, you know, a spotting ground, a seeding mechanism. The, the, the movement was totally penetrated by the FBI. In fact, there was some who used to joke that if you know, if the FBI stopped, the, the, the who would infiltrate the Communist Party, stop paying their dues. The party would probably fall. Um, so they knew that they couldn't use that anymore. They also said, you know, it's you know it's kind of dollars, not doctrine, now that attracts people. So what they start doing is going after uh, people in the military because they're concerned, obviously, about a military confrontation. And they see that money is going to be, the, you know, a bigger motive for Americans that their ideology holds no attraction any longer which is, in fact, the case. Mark.
0: Uh, Mike, thanks for a really interesting talk and what promises to be a useful book. Um, this may be a real simple, simple uh, question for you to dispose of. I'm not, I'm not sure. In, in the period of history that's, I guess you're going to cover in Volume 2, uh, there have been quite a number of cases of you know, smaller powers who have uh, run uh, espionage operations against us. Uh, South Africa, I know one or two sub-Saharan African countries, Israel, I guess the Dutch ran a guy in the NSA for a while. Uh, in the period of the, your book covers, are there any sort of quirky little cases where, you know, uh, uh, the, the Portuguese or the, you know, the, the, the sort of stand out that weren't really about big the big power politics of the day? Or is that a, a much more recent sort of post, uh, post-World post War II phenomenon?
3: Yeah. Uh, you know, there may have been, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But the fact is, since we had no counter-espionage service as such, there could have been, and we just don't know about them. I mean, I can only write about the cases that we know about, you know, so... Uh, a lot of people probably escaped uh, uh, unheard of, but yeah, there it's. Um, you know, I, I think the was it the National Counterintelligence Executive said, said a few years ago it said like 100 and, no, was it four, no, 40 nations actively spying against the United States. So during the Cold War days, or in the later latter part, you got nations like I mean, Ghana actually uh, had somebody inside the, the CIA for a while. That's almost an insult, Ghana. Don't we be able? To... <laughs> Ecuador. Well, okay. Uh, Matt, all the way in the back there. Yeah.
0: Um, one, uh, a country you did not talk about was Great Britain. Was there? Uh, there were. There was a military liaison between uh, the time Britain declared war on Germany and the and Pearl Harbor. Did any of the activities of this? Um, a mil- British military presence cross over into espionage.
3: Okay, I have to, have to clarify. British, you mean, I'm not, I'm not, I guess I don't okay, understand. The
0: British the were gathering intelligence in the United States prior to Pearl oh. Harbor, and some of it was above, you know, above board of influencing mm-hmm. American public opinion. But did any of it? actually cross over into outright espionage.
3: No, I mean, I know of no cases of any, let's say, major spy who was working for British intelligence. Again, because we were cooperating with the British, they could, um, I think the Americans, they dealt with were talking pretty freely to them, you know, envisioning them as our, well, they were our allies, but envisioning them as wartime allies as well. So, no. Another
2: one? Okay, right here.
4: I did uh, hear of a book that this woman wrote about this uh, British military attache here during World War, about the time of World War II, who, who was interested in going to a lot of cocktail parties and the like, getting information and trying to influence uh, you know, the, the U.S. being supportive of the British and that kind of thing. Uh, that, that was kind of a Poison spying,
3: but they try to. Yeah, but I don't see that as any major spy. I'm talking about somebody who says, I will betray American secrets for you, British military intelligence attache. Meta, yeah. Yeah.
5: Hi, Mike. Um, Did you
4: find, are there lessons for today, either in intelligence gathering or counterintelligence, that you learned doing your research?
3: Well, again, you know, as I stress that common thread of disbelief, um, you know, there there is a tendency of Americans to think their fellow citizens are basically good people and would never go so far as to betray this wonderful country. So um, I think that still persists. I mean, you know, even in my old organization, um, you know, counterintelligence is always something people are nervous about because, you know, they're the naysayers, they're the – you know, sometimes obstructions, they want to take a step back and look at everything subjectively. Uh, uh, so I think, you know, that's the lesson. The lesson is, especially after, you, know, you Americans are a lot smarter now. You see what happened during the 1930s and 40s, and they saw the vast extent of Soviet espionage. I think we're a little smarter about it now, too. But still, you know, there are pockets sometimes who, who just uh, don't believe it or don't want to believe it, but it persists.
1: Hi, just a couple short questions. Um, when you talked about zealots who saw you know, spies everywhere, I didn't hear you mention James Jesus Angleton, but is that just because he was later time? Is that, maybe that's for the second book? I don't know.
3: There, in fact, there will be a whole chapter in the second book. Oh, okay. on, on
1: and, and two, um, I remember reading in Kim Philby's memoir that uh, he had uh, helped prepare exfiltrations for other people uh, involved with the Rosenbergs, same spy ring, and that he had neglected to do one for them since he thought they were so such minor characters as to not even merit any real interest, um, and that he uh, regretted that the rest of his life. Is that, uh, is that so at all true? He what they, that that he Philby, had, had... Philby had not uh, developed any sort of plan to exfiltrate the Rosenbergs because he thought they were such minor uh functionaries that they wouldn't receive a whole lot of attention
3: the, um, so, the Soviets actually did want to uh, exfiltrate them and the, the Rosenbergs were kind of resisting until um, you know, it became almost too late uh, they were going to exfiltrate not only the Rosenbergs but uh, brother in law David Greenglass and his wife and Greenglass's wife suffered serious burns in a fire in her kitchen so she couldn't travel. So they, they put it off for a, a couple of more months. And actually, by then, it really was too late. And that's, of course, when they, they got arrested.
2: Yeah, one right here, uh, Mike.
4: Mr. Solik, looking forward to reading your book. Question, what do you think of WikiLeak uh, and the new electronic age making it easier for spies to spy and government and private sector?
3: Yeah, no, it's clearly very serious. You know, the amount of information that you can, you know, a spy can get put on a flash drive now would take, you know, a legion of spies to collect. I think one case, Jonathan Pollard case, you're probably familiar with, who was for Israel. He used to lug suitcases full of information out of his office and was was actually caught because he was spotted and somebody, one of his colleagues was a little suspicious bringing all his stuff out. Nowadays, he could just walk out with that in his, you know, in his shirt pocket through the use of a flash drive. Um, so uh, it's you know, clearly a lot more serious on WikiLeaks itself. I think it's it's uh, what's interesting about that phenomenon. I think is that um, it's going to be a lot harder, I think, in the future to try cases on this when people say I am exposing it for, I'm not giving it selling something to a foreign power I'm just exposing you know whatever is wrong with the United States government or whatever they're doing wrong and um, you know, even though they may be leaking classified information juries are not necessarily going to you know want to hang them the same way as somebody who's selling secrets to Iran or selling secrets to Chinese you know nuclear secrets to China or something so I think those cases are going to be a little bit more uh, difficult in the in days to come. I mean, you see, I don't know whether Bradley Manning is, is innocent. That's, that's up to the tribunal to de, de, determine that. But you see, he's got a lot of supporters out there, uh, and as does Julian Assange too. So I think this is you know, the activities of places like Anonymous and so on are are going to be a lot, a lot more difficult to kind of thwart in that area as we go along.
5: Okay one last question right back here. Hi if I may I would like to ask two questions. So you mentioned as an aside that uh, intelligence really hasn't changed history and I think it's in the public record that we spent over 80 billion dollars worth on the intelligence apparatus. It begs the question at what point is, does it become a prohibitive, prohibitive, prohibitively too costly to spend on the intelligence bureaucracy and, and the second question is have we given enough thinking about how to retire former spies? Not everybody could write a book about the spy business. And what prompts this question is Actually,
3: true? I think everybody can, and, <laughs> almost, and almost everybody has.
5: Point well taken. But in the, in the case, what, what prompts that, that question is, is, is uh, the role that the KGB has played in Putin coming to power in, in Russia. And you do wonder whether we could have done a better job dismantling the KGB to prohibit somebody like Putin coming to power again?
3: Well, you know, it certainly wasn't up to us to dismantle the KGB. I mean, this was up to the, you know, the Russian people, really, to to do that. Um, <laughs> I do remember one of my uh, former supervisors, I can quote him here, Milt Bearden, who... who uh, when we first started dealing with Eastern Europe and the Russians, he said, let's, we'll tell them about how we organize an intelligence system in a democratic society. We'll teach them about conf- congressional oversight. And he said, uh, and "He said they'll never be a threat to anybody again forever once that happens. So, uh. Okay, Mike Sulik, thank you
2: so much for a terrific presentation this afternoon.
0: I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.